Hello and welcome to this IBR Extra, a podcast from the Iowa Business Report. I'm Jeff Stein. In the 39th edition of our program, which aired during the final weekend of September 2020, I talked with Bill Higgs, an authority on corporate culture and author of Culture Code Champions, Seven Steps to Scale and Succeed in Your Business. He says a failure to communicate clearly can cost your business money and time. And he also taught me a new word, unobtainium. You'll hear more in this conversation, which was conducted via Zoom on Wednesday, September 23rd. I think we've all had the situation where someone who assigns you a task figures it can be done in a very short amount of time, not recognizing the complexity, and that's where there's a problem in the workplace. Is this commonplace? Is it something that is really hampering people from moving forward? Well, I think when uh, you talk about businesses, it all comes down to communication. All problems are communication problems. And what I've found generally happens is you've got silos in the organization and the people don't know how the data that they transmit to another silo is actually used or what's needed. So they're doing it in their silo the way they think it's the best. But when it comes into the next silo, they might actually have to redo it in order to use it. So one of the things that's happened like in this pandemic, the first thing that goes down when the economy goes down. I've been through a lot of big downturns in the oil patch. The first thing that disappears is silos (laughs) because everybody's in the soup together and uh, they got to figure out how to hold hands and get through it. And so what happens is your communication gets better. You get a little bit better cross training and you can, what I say, what you want to do is get things right the first time. You can't do that when you have the silos and the breaks in the communication. People are hesitant to go up, even to coworkers, but certainly to superiors often to ask a question. And that's really a mistake because it's much worse to guess what the manager wants and guess wrong than to simply ask. And that's probably made worse by all of this working from home where you have to go through a few more hoops in order to talk to the person who could answer your question. And you're also concerned with your own job security. So you're afraid to ask the question because it might make it look like you're not as technically or as qualified as you should be for the job. But that's where communication is a two-way street. And right now, the leaders know more about their employees than they ever have. They know their family situation, their kids, where they live. And so I think it's actually more open to ask those questions. But you're right. If you don't ask, you can spend a week on a task, hand it over, and it gets kicked back in your back to square one. And now you're losing schedule. It's a lot of dollars that you're losing. For an engineering firm, we went from zero to a billion dollars in 15 years. And we attribute it all to squeezing those handoffs so that we had the people talking at both sides of a handoff so that it was delivered on time, it was delivered in a format the other person could use it, sort of like uh, in a relay race where you're handing off the baton. If that person's not ready for it, then it sits there for a week or two. And what we found is there's 30% schedule, 30% cost lost in handoffs. So we built our whole firm on squeezing those handoffs and getting it right the first time. 
It's a big differentiator. Is it a matter that people are so focused on what they do that they can't conceive of what the other person does, or they just make the assumption that the other person must know completely what I'm talking about, ignoring that we all have these silos you mentioned? (laughs) We invented this term, and, and it comes from an engineer needed to do a pump for a tough application. So engineer took longer than normal to get the specification written and threw it over into purchasing. Purchasing went out for bids with it. It takes longer than normal to get the bids back in. Purchasing comes back to engineering and said, this pump that you want us to buy, it's made out of unobtainium. So this is like some new material. It's unobtainium. You cannot find this pump in the world. And I about fell out of my chair when I heard this term. But we started using that term, unobtainium, and looking for it in the organization. Where does somebody do something and then has to redo it? That was unobtainium. So what happened in that case, that engineer knew this was a tough pump application. They could have gotten with purchasing and said, bring in three vendors and let's figure out what this pump should look like. So when I specify it and you bid it, they can actually bid on it and it's something that'll work. Could have solved three months of wasted time and energy with a short conversation, but we call it unobtainium. So it's a rare earth metal, but it's like rampant in all organizations. And if you can have a fun term that people are looking for, then they'll start saying, hey, I'm going to hand this off to this other person. Let me go talk to them and say, this is how I normally do it. Is that what you need before you start working? And then that person knows you're going to deliver it, knows you're going to deliver it on a certain day, knows it's going to come ready for them to work on. And it just starts to change the whole complexion in your company. And you become like a bigger team instead of all these siloed organizations. And to your point, if you can have a fun way to refer to something, it disarms or diffuses the situation so no one feels like they're being picked on or targeted. It's part of your company's culture that you can sort of laugh it off and get to where you need to be. Like you say, a person could come to the other person and say, I think I might be creating an obtainium over here. And they immediately knew what they were talking about. Sure. And that, hey, if we solve this now, it's going to help both of us. So exactly correct. It's a disarming phrase that opens the communication channel. Does it help to have employees consciously know how other aspects of the operation work. Cross-training is a phrase that's used a lot. I know in various organizations that I've been involved with, someone might come in and say they wanted to do a certain job, and I would say, okay, go learn this other one. And they'd say, no, but I want to do this over here. And my answer is yes, but that one over there directly relates to what you're doing. You're going to be better at your job if you understand theirs. Is that helpful in this sort of uh, climate? Yeah, so that's that's the cross-training that we used to do. There are a number of ways to do it. You can do lunch and learns where like a vendor will come in, supply sandwiches, and like you could get two or three different groups in there. Even though the vendor is talking to one group, the other two that are related can be in there and learn more about how, say, electrical thinks about something. But you could have the automation people and the instrumentation people in there hearing couple of things happen with a lunch and learn. Now they get to know people in those other silos. And so if they have a problem and they're electrical and it's a problem that's going to need an automation resource or help, they know somebody they can call in automation because they were in that lunch and learn together. 
But exactly right. If you can put people into related business sectors for a little bit, and they won't be a top dog there, they'll be mid-level maybe, but they're going to learn and then they come back to their normal area and they're a top dog, but their communication is going to be better across those silos or those boundaries. When an organization either has multiple branches or offices that aren't in the same location, or now more commonly, half the people are at home three days a week or five days a week, and the other half may be spread out among other places, you really have to consciously make the effort to connect. So on the whole, are we succeeding at that, or are we still harming ourselves by failing to make communication especially in this age of, as they call it, work from home. I've seen and heard of a lot of great stories. One of the things that we tried to do part of our culture was to create memories and put smiles on people's faces. And if every day you can be trying to do something on a memory or a smile, then you can start to win the hearts and the minds of your people. And then we did things like we'd put our logo on toys and whatever. Well, we would also hand those out as skating parties to the kids or we'd mail them to the house. And what we were trying to do there was now the family's making a memory, smiling. They've got this weird toy that climbs up glass windows and it's got our logo on it. And they're talking about the company. Well, now I'm, I'm getting the hearts and the minds of the family at the house. Now it makes it a lot easier for that employee if they need to work some extra time or whatever. The family knows that, wow. That person's enjoying that company and they support them a lot better. What's happening now, especially with the remote working, is the family is a support mechanism. So if you can do some of these things where you start to win the hearts and the minds of the family, like uh, I know people have created like virtual cookbooks where they'll have a picture of the family and this is a recipe that came down from grandma and they'll all be around or helping make it and they'll have that picture and they'll do this virtual cookbook. But you're starting to bring people together, even though you're apart, and it's it's building a team mentality. So I was an airborne ranger. In the rangers, you were the best of the best. Everybody wanted to join your organization. What you want to do in your company is create that team mentality where everybody on the outside goes, man, they're the best. I want to get in that company. That changes your hiring process. <laughs> now you get to have, you get to pick who's trying to get in and you can be a much better company by the people you're bringing in. You have such extensive experience running your own company, helping others. Can you walk into a workplace and feel if it has a bad culture or feel if there are unrealistic expectations? Absolutely. We worked on our company to where when you came in the parking garage, you started to feel the culture. And I teach Vistage, where you teach like 20 or 30 CEOs at a time, and it's hosted by a different company when you go. And there was one manufacturing plant. I walked in the door and I go, I'm not teaching this person anything about culture. It was on the walls. The receptionist was bubbly. You walk down the halls, the people are smiling. They're engaging with you. I'm like, this is some stud CEO, whoever it is. It was funny for me because one of the things I said about culture is I believe in hard copy communication. And so I mentioned some different ways, like, you know, giving a hat or a toy or whatever with your logo on it's hard copy communication to the employee. They know that stuff normally only goes to clients. So when you're giving it to employee, they're going, 
well, this company thinks I'm as important as a client. Well, I gave the example of sending the newsletter home hard copy instead of just digitally giving it to the employees and maybe digitally sending it to the house where they'll read one line and delete it. But if you send it hard copy, the spouse is going to look at every page. If there's pictures of kids or things coming up, they're going to show it to them. Well, the CEO of this company, I thought I could teach nothing to, during break went to his head of HR and said, you're going to go listen to this guy in two days because he's teaching another class. And in the meantime, I want our newsletter to go out hard copy to the houses. <laughs> and so two days later, I saw her and I said, what are you doing here? Your company's got the best culture I think I've ever seen. And she told me that the hard copy of the newsletter, but that CEO was attuned to culture. And so when he heard something that he hadn't done, he immediately jumped on and said, oh, that's going to buy me some people at the house helping my employees. So it's having your brain turned on and thinking about those types of things. And that is so important. What a great example, because invariably when there is stress between work and home, trying to strike the right balance, oh, yeah. sometimes it's helpful if everybody understands each other. And so if the family feels more connected to work, they might understand why the employee has to go out of town. Well, we don't do that anymore, but go out of town, <laughs> work, to. <laughs> work late, work at home. But by the same token, I suppose if you've got a CEO or a manager who's in tune, they can allow then that employee to go off for a family event or a kid's sporting event or whatever. We like to say that we want to leave work at work and leave home at home, but it's impossible in 2020. Yeah, you can't. It's it's all merged together. And when we started our company, we wanted to be the best engineering firm. But at our Christmas party in the fourth year, I had a spouse come up to me and I'm I'm always bouncing around talking to everybody at the parties and stuff. She grabbed me by the shoulders and said, Bill, listen to me. My spouse has changed since coming to Mustang Engineering. They get up in the morning, gung ho, ready to go to work, can't wait for it. They come home, they still have energy when they get home. They're engaging more with me, engaging more with the kids. They're even talking about going to church on Sunday. Whatever you're doing, keep doing it. It just sent a chill up and down my spine because our industry just ate people up. Engineers are a number. You hire them, you fire them. We were trying to not do that. And when she said that to me, it's like, oh, we can change lives by having this people first culture where people start bonding and we were in Houston, so we've gone through all these hurricanes and the oil prices and <laughs> all these different things. So there are a lot of outside reasons for people to get together, but because we had bonded at work, families took care of families and they would move them into their house while their house was being fixed after a hurricane. And that bonding, our turnover. So the big thing about culture to me is it goes right to the bottom line. Our bottom line was four times our competitors. An intentional culture can easily double it with two things. One is reducing turnover. Turnover was 35 to 50% in our industry. It was 2 to 5% at our company as we grew from three people to 7,000 people. The other thing it does by keeping the people squeezing those handoffs like we talked about getting rid of unobtainium is you're more efficient. So you're producing more to the bottom line. So two big reasons, but those are dollar reasons. But the improving the lives and improving the lives of the family, 
15 years in, I was brought into a room. There were a hundred children of Mustangers that were now working at Mustang. And they just wanted to give me a round of applause and thank me for letting them grow up in that culture. They went to college and they knew exactly where they wanted to go afterwards. And so you start building a legacy that feeds on it. So what a great thing to know that you can still, even with all of these changes, you can still have it where a kid aspires to work where their parent did because they saw what a good experience it was. And that always goes to the bottom line. If you've got a competent, satisfied, engaged workforce. We had one uh, drafter who I talked to just maybe two years ago. And then his daughter is now working at the company. And I visit with her and she says, my dad was a drafter. So drafters were definitely treated like numbers. I mean, they were the first to go in any downturn or when a job went in. And she said he had been, you know, in seven years, he'd been in eight different companies until he landed at Mustang. And she says it totally changed him. He was drinking too much. He was not a good father. He was not engaging. She said, it changed the life for me and my four brothers and sisters, him spending that next 20 years at Mustang. And so that's why she came. She could see how it changed her family's, just the connectivity within the family. I didn't even know that story until I met her a couple of years ago. Bill Higgs, author of Culture Code Champions. More at his website, culturecodechampions.com, including information about his new Culture Code Champions podcast. The Iowa Association of Business and Industry is a supporter of the Iowa Business Report radio program and podcast. The Iowa Business Report airs weekly on dozens of radio stations across the state of Iowa, with the podcast posted right here every week, along with additional IBR extras, and IBR Business Profiles. I'm Jeff Stein for the Iowa Business Report.